good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Go ahead and take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Uh, you can grab the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 988. Page 988. And uh, before we take a, a break for uh, the celebration of Easter next week, we want to finish up uh, the last couple verses out of the book that we've been studying, the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, next week, uh, so as you share uh, an invite with someone, we'll be talking about what it means to second guess uh, the resurrection and uh, what it means to doubt. We'll be looking at the life of, of Thomas and look at how he responded uh, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how many people uh, respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ with doubts and with questions. And, and uh, we learn uh, from the story of Thomas that Jesus uh, takes care of all those doubts. He, he resolves all those questions that we have about what he has done and uh, what he can do uh, for each and every one of us. And so we look forward to doing that. But uh, before we get there this uh, Sunday, we want to finish up this first letter. And we're going to uh, finish up this letter this week and then in two weeks we're going to pick up right where we left off and we're going to look at second thessalonians and we're going to do that just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going we'll be doing that uh, over the month of april and we'll be finishing up before mother's day uh, this series that we started in january uh, that we have entitled ready learning what paul has been telling these first century christians about what it means to live readied lives for christ And we've been learning in this five-chapter letter uh, what Paul means by being ready. It means living pure lives. It means living lives filled with brotherly or sisterly love. It's it's the idea of of putting our life in in order under the Word of God and and living in such a way that the gospel resonates in all facets of our life, whether at work or at school or in our neighborhoods or all around the world. We need to be ready. And one of the reasons why is Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back, and and we need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared for that. We need to recognize that he will not come back until he has given the full amount of time for us to share the gospel and for everyone uh, that he has called to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we want to be a part of that, and and we want to be engaged in that um, endeavor uh, for his name and for his glory. And we find ourselves this morning at the very end of the book, the end of the letter. And Paul does not disappoint us. He does not uh, finish this letter, uh, if you will, with just a bunch of pleasant platitudes or, or just kind of talking about the weather. He finishes the letter quite strong. And he helps us to understand as we've been working through this letter, uh, not only what it means to be ready, But I wonder if there were some in that first century congregation who were sitting there and as they were listening to this letter being read, they began to ask themselves, man, that's a lot of you to ask of me, Paul. Is God really wanting me to be involved in all that? Is God really asking me or even commanding me to do all of these things? I I barely spiritually can get up in the morning. I barely spiritually can can keep my life together. And, And it sure seems like... What God is calling me to is a whole lot more than that. And, and I'm just not sure I can do it. Or maybe there were people in the congregation who, who, who didn't have doubts on whether they could do it. They knew flat out they weren't doing it. And they were sitting there going, that just seems impossible. There's no way I can do it. I have so much sin and so much issues in my life. There's no way I'm going to be able to fulfill what God has for me. Well, no matter where you're at this morning... Paul has a word for every one of us, and it's a word that tells us we can be ready, 
We should be ready and we will be ready if we are a child of God. And here's why. Because God's going to see to it that all of that is taken care of. Now, that means that we've got to understand all of what that involves, but God wants to guarantee something to you this morning. You will be holy. He doesn't say it as a threat. He shares it as a promise. You and I will be holy just as our God in heaven is holy. He says, I'm in the process of making people holy. And what we'll learn today is the one who promises is truly faithful to that end. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So I want you to grab God's word. I want you to uh, grab that uh, sermon insert sheet uh, that's in your bulletin to follow along. And let me read our passage this morning, and then we'll ask for God's word, uh, or God's blessing on the time in his word this morning. We're going to start in verse 23, and we'll go to the end of the letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And he finished the letter like this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father God, it's been a blessing and a joy and a privilege to walk through this letter word by word, verse by verse, line by line. In doing so, Lord, we have seen what your word uh, was to that first century group of believers. And we are reminded by Paul's words that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so what we read this morning, Father is your words to a first century church, but we are reminded that this word is true for us this morning. The same word that had the power to change the lives in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago has the same spirit behind it today that can change lives here in Sugar Grove in the 21st century. And so, Lord, as we close out this letter, let us be reminded of all that we've learned up to this point. Let us continue to ask how our lives can be restructured and and can be evaluated based on this letter of 1 Thessalonians. But Lord, as we're reminded today, let us never think that this endeavor of being ready is an endeavor we take on our own. That we need you uh, to do it. It's easy for us to grow weary and tired. It's easy for us to be anxious about our struggles and our sin. But Lord, we are reminded today that you are a good God and a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And just as you began that good work in us, you are faithful to see that work even to the point of completion. And for that, I'm thankful. And so Lord, we ask for your blessing as we finish this letter, that you would receive glory from it. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Well, Paul had written this letter to the people of Thessalonica, which is now modern-day Greece. 
and he had written to them, to a group of people who had just come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And some this morning may find themselves new to their walk with Jesus Christ. Now their changed life was something of great significance. They had lived their entire lives following the gods of Greek mythology and following all of the rabbit trails that the Greek gods would lead people through. The idea of never knowing where you were at with any of those gods. If it rained on the day of your picnic, you knew one of the gods was mad at you. You weren't sure what god and you weren't sure what you were supposed to do. So you would pay homage to all these gods to, in essence, cover the bases so that every god would be okay with you because you never knew where you were at with the gods. But the Thessalonican people had turned from those gods, small g, to the one living and true God, big G, and they had given their lives over to this one God. And the question was, what happens when I mess up? What happens when I anger this God? What happens when I don't do what this God wants me to do? What's going to happen? Is God going to, you know, if you will, rain on my parade? Is he going to make my life incredibly difficult? Is he going to, uh, in essence, throw a fit and, and ruin my life? And Paul says, listen, you've got a lot to work on. There are a lot of things that you need to be doing. There are a lot of things that need to be evident in your life as followers of Jesus Christ. But before I close this letter, Paul says, I want to remind you that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is different than Zeus or Apollo. Because he isn't feckless. He isn't one that is given to all this capriciousness of, uh, of uh, uh, in essence, being an adolescent God. No, the God we serve is a God who promises some things. And the promises that he gives are promises that tell us that when we give our lives over to him, that that process from our salvation to at the second coming of Jesus Christ, our glorification, is a process that in the mind of God is already complete. Now we struggle, and and we're dealing with all of the issues and all of the questions that we have, but God says, listen, you're going to make it to the finish line. I have no doubt in my mind because I am the one who is behind you. And so you don't have to wonder where your standing is at with me. I love you, I care for you, and I will see you from the beginning line all the way to the end. And I will be there with open arms when you get there. So Paul begins to address this. And what Paul is addressing is a a theological understanding of, of the word that we use in the church called sanctification. You see, for many of us, we began uh, our walk with God, or our walk with Jesus Christ, when we bowed the knee to him. We heard the preaching and teaching of God's word, and we said, wait a minute, I can't live for myself anymore. I've got to live for this God. I've got to live for this uh, Savior who came and, and died for me. And so you give your life to Jesus, and many of you did it through a prayer, or many of you did it through a, uh, a profession of faith, uh, maybe at a baptism or at some service, and, and you said, God, I need you in my life, and Jesus Jesus, I'm going to live for you, and and Jesus, I want you to lead my life. We call that justification, and in that moment, the sinner becomes a saint. Not per se because of anything that he or she has done, but because of the what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ takes his perfection, he takes our sin in this great exchange, and places his sin, uh, our sin, on him. And in turn, after he takes our sin, he places his righteousness on us. Positionally, we are perfect. But the problem is, is we don't live that way, do we? 
We don't act that way. And so the process that, that then we move forward in, justification being a moment, a place in time that takes place in the life of the believer, then begins a process that we call sanctification. We'll get back to sanctification in a moment. At the end of the Christian life, which we learned about at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Christians will experience another change. Not a justification, not a progressive sanctification, but an ultimate what the scriptures call glorification. That is where God will take our lowly bodies and he will make our bodies in a twinkling of an eye to be like Christ's resurrected body. The Bible says we will see him and we will know him because we have been fully known. The idea here is there will be such a complete transformation that we will become like Christ. In the idea, not not that we become a God, but the idea that we will become like him in our position and in our understanding, that we'll be able to stand and know Christ in full intimacy. Very similar to what Adam and Eve did before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, between those two spectrums is a journey. And that journey is this idea of sanctification, the process of making one holy. I want you to think about it this way, and I don't have this in my outline this morning, but I want you to write down a couple things this morning. There are many approaches to to how to get from justification to glorification. And people take different approaches to this. And I want to use the, the illustration or metaphor that salvation begins on the shoreline of a large body of water on one side, if you will, of the sea. And on the other side, far along the horizon, is, is way out as you squint your eyes, you can just see the, the edge of it, is another landmass. And that's the other side of the sea. And on the other side of the sea is our glorification. And we know it's there. And we are told that we should look forward to getting over there, but we've got a problem. There's a great sea or a great waterway that splits the two, justification and glorification. Now, how do we get from being saved here to being glorified in the age to come is the process that every one of us are a part of right now, sanctification. Now, we can approach getting from justification, our salvation, to our ultimate glorification in three ways. I want you to write these down. The first way you can do it is what I'd like to call the powerboat approach. The powerboat approach is that you uh, are in your vessel and you recognize there's a long way I need to go. And I'm not going to get there anytime soon because it's a long ways away. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to find something or someone that's going to get me from point A to point uh, B really quickly. What am I going to do? For some of us as Christians, we have used our salvation as a purchasing, if you will, of the needed equipment to get us from point A to point B. Jesus became the powerboat motor that we hooked onto our vessel so that we would get from point A to point B. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that when we do that, you're not doing any of the work, right? The motor's doing all of the work. And the problem is is that the scripture says that this work of sanctification is literally going to be a work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul tells us in another passage. And so we need to recognize this morning that some of us have approached Jesus with this. I will go and I will, if you will, purchase or get this salvation, Jesus. I'll hook this Jesus to my life and I'm not going to change the way I live. 
I'm not going to change what I do. Uh, Jesus is going to be my insurance policy to get me from point A to point B, and I'm just going to enjoy my ride along the way. The problem with that is the Bible makes it clear, first of all, that while Jesus is the one who helps to get us from point A to point B, in the process of sanctification, he's not the only part. We play a part as well. But there's another group, and, and, and it's not just the power boat, but it's what I'd like to call the rowboat. The rowboat. The rowboat people hate the powerboat people. Do you know that? They can't stand them. And powerboat people can't stand the rowboat people. The rowboat looks at, at where they're at on the shoreline of one side of the sea, and they look to the horizon, and they see where they need to go on the other one. And they say, wait a minute. The powerboat, that's not the way to do it because I watch them and all they're doing is partying and drinking and, and enjoying themselves on the boat and they think Jesus is going to get them from point A to point B. Let me tell you something, Christianity is hard work. And so what I need to do is I need to get in my rowboat and I need to start rowing. And I need to start doing that. And while those people are enjoying the free life, if you will, and enjoying it and, and, and just letting Jesus do all the work, the other Christian is saying, you know what, the way I get from my salvation to my glorification and sanctification is I do all the hard work. And you'll know who the rowboat people are. They're sweating. They're tired. And they'll talk something like this. It's no greater job than, than to be a Christian, even though my life is miserable and I hate it and I'm tired. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And they're tired and they're weary. And they're thinking, if I just keep rowing, I'll get there. If I just keep rowing. And they're cramping up and they're angry and they're looking at the powerboat people and they're saying, man, they're not doing it. That's not real Christianity. And for many of them, they grow tired and they give up. You see, the powerboat nor the rowboat are the way that God has called us to become holy. So what's the approach? How do we get from our salvation, which is won freely by Jesus Christ, how do we get from there to our ultimate glorification in the age to come? The answer is the sailboat approach. The sailboat approach. You see, the sailboat approach looks at sanctification and it recognizes God plays a part. But so do we. That it's incomplete for us to sit in the boat and let God do all of the work. But likewise, it's incomplete for us to think that we'll row our way from one side of the sea to the other while God's, not, while God's absent or, or not present in that process. So the rowboat splits the two in half. The rowboat says, listen, when you're on the one side of the boat and you want to get to the other, the people on a, a sailboat, what do they do? They start managing the sails. They start setting the sails up, making sure that they're not tangled, making sure that they're able to go up the mast with, uh, with uh, unfettered access. They make sure there's no holes in the sail, because they know if there's holes in the sail, the wind's going to go right through it. And so there's a maintenance going on, and there's a positioning going on by, by us in the vessel. But here's the problem. A sailboat doesn't move unless there's wind. I know I got a lot of hot air, but I can't move a boat. And so I have to recognize that all the maintenance that I can do on a boat is determined on one point. And that one point is, is God has to breathe by his spirit the winds that move me from point A to point B. Does that make sense? And so I've got a work to do. 
I've got some things that I've got to be doing in my life, but likewise, God must show up. Listen to me very carefully this morning. God must show up in your life to make you holy. But God calls every one of us to be positioned that when he shows up, we're moving. We're ready for that. And so the sailboat analogy is the best analogy to understand this process of sanctification. And here's, here's what will be helpful for you. For some of you right now, you're wondering why the ship isn't moving the way it needs to, right? You're sitting there going, wait a minute, I, I should be moving. I should be getting closer to that point. It seems I'm as far away as I was yesterday. There, there is one thing that may be true. God says he's going to be faithful. The wind's going to be there. And so the question this morning isn't, is God doing his job? But maybe my sails aren't in the direction they need to be. Maybe there's some holes in the sails. Maybe, maybe there's some problems with the vessel that I have that I need to work on and clean up. Paul gives, in the most beautiful fashion at the end of this letter, the sailboat analogy of what sanctification looks like. God plays his part, and you play a part as well. I want you to notice what he says. He says, okay, if you want to get from one place to the other, if you want to be ready to do that, how do you get ready? First of all, you must engage, write this down, you must engage with the person who makes holiness possible. Holiness is not possible apart from the work of God. Notice verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Let's stop there. How does one become holy? How does one become ready? That idea of ready literally could be a perfect synonym to holiness. Are you ready? Well, let me ask you the question. Are you holy? Christ is coming back. And in that day, he says, will I find faith? Will I find holiness? Will I find a readied people at my coming? So how do we become ready? How do we become holy? The answer is God. It is God who enables holiness and readiness in the lives of his people. Anyone who's walking with God this morning is, is undergoing a makeover. It began at our salvation, and it's where God continues to do this work. But if you're like me, you're feeling like the makeover isn't taking place. Some of the issues and struggles that you've had haven't caused transformation, but more of the same. I want you to recognize this morning that the process that God gives us for holiness is not a once and for all endeavor, but a progressive day after day journey. And there will be days where you'll find more progress, and there'll be days where maybe quite frankly you feel like you're regressing. But notice what Paul says. Paul says that the way that, where we have to tap into it is in God himself. Notice the source. Paul answers the question, where where does it come from? Where does our holiness or our readiness come from? Notice in our text, Paul says, look at the Bible, look what it says. Now may you in your own strength, or through the strength of another person, be sanctified. Right? Doesn't it say if you work really, really hard, you can be holy. If you clean yourself up really, really good, then you'll be holy. If you, if you cut those things out of your life, then you will really, really be holy. No. Here's the problem. Sinners, listen, sinners can't make sinners holy. I can do everything in my power, and I'm still going to be a sinner. I'm still going to be unholy. 
There's utter futility to think that I can make myself holy. Think of it this way. Every once in a while, I change the oil on my cars, and then I get so frustrated about the whole entire process and think it's only going to cost me $30, and I go back to the professionals. And here's inevitably why. I get oil on my hands, right? And what, what do I do when I get oil on my hands? Well, I go to the oil pan, and I, as I've got a couple drips of oil on my hand, I go to that oil pan, and I just dip my hands into the oil pan, and I start trying to get the other oil off, right? Sit there, if, if, if I have a little oil on my hands, well, more oil is going to fix the problem, right? No, this is going to make me dirtier. And a lot of us think that I, I can fix this, I can do it. No, you've got oil on your hands, and more oil isn't going to help. You need someone that's going to come in, some sort of cleaning agent that breaks through the oil and removes it from your hand without making you messier in the process. That's what God did through his son Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why we celebrate Easter in the way that we do. Because Christ came and we had this dirty life and this dirty heart and we tried through all of our endeavors, through all our, 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 our workings to try to clean ourselves up and the only thing that it did was make us more dirty. And so we're filthy. And Christ comes along. And Christ says, I have exactly what you need to be cleaned up. And Christ, as he's wiping us clean and, and cleaning of us of all of this uh, ungodliness and sin, we no longer are seeing the stains of the oil of our sin and, and wrong living. We start seeing holiness. We see a cleanness that we've never seen before. Who does it? It's God. Now notice what Paul says. He says, here's the answer. We've got to tap into God. Now notice a couple things about it. First of all, first of all, God takes this responsibility onto himself. Notice the phrase, now may the God of peace, help me out with the word there, himself. What Paul is saying is, is that God says, this isn't a job I'm going to give to my employees. This isn't a job I'm going to give to the angels. This isn't a job I'm going to give to the church pastors. This isn't a job that I'm going to give your mom and dad. God says, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to see to it that this job gets done. As a guy who has employees, as a one who, who is the boss in a small, small business, here's what I want you to know. If there's an important job to do in a business... If there's an important customer to serve in your business, you don't send the employee, right? You do it yourself. You do it yourself because the task is so important, the task is uh, so contingent on all else that you're doing, that you're not going to trust that job with anybody else but yourself. And God, in a perfect way, says, I'm not going to give this to an angel. I'm not going to give this to a prophet. I'm not going to give this to a human being. I'm going to do this job myself. Jesus Christ came, being God, put on flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why? So he could do this job himself. The book of Hebrews says he could have sent an angel but he didn't. He could have allowed one of the prophets to do it, but he didn't. Far better than the prophets, far better than the angels. 
is the boss, Jesus Christ. He does it. He doesn't send someone to do it. So when you are being made holy, you need to understand this is a work of God. He's entered into it, and he delights in it. He takes responsibility for it. Notice a couple other things. Notice that there's a result that takes place. Now may the God of, help me out there, peace. Well, what does that mean? Why, of all the names of God in this passage on sanctification, would Paul announce that God is a God of peace? He could have said, and the God of wrath, or the God of justice, or the God of love, or the the God of of, uh, fulfilled promises. No, he starts with this title of his position being the God of peace. Because this phrase tells us, listen... That God recognizes as you are being made holy, as I am being made holy, that peace many times will not be a part of the process. We don't have peace when we sin. We don't have peace when we're sitting out, if you will, in that sea where, where the journey's taking place and our ship's been sitting in the same place over and over again. And we're sitting there going, I don't know what's wrong. I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I, I don't know where this ship mast is supposed to go. And I don't know where this sail is supposed to be. And, and I don't know how to fix the sail that's broken. And, and I'm messed up and I'm sitting here and we lack peace and we lack assurance. And, and so we become anxious. And we start wondering, am I going to be ready for that moment when I stand before Jesus? Am I, am I going to have the answer for him? Or, man, or is he going to find a guy or a gal that's so messed up that he's going to say, you know what, you're beyond hope. And Paul says, listen, the God of peace. A couple of things about this idea of peace. Number one, God is at peace with you. He's not at war with you in this process. So if you've got this idea that you're a child of God and you've sinned and God's wrath and judgment is coming down upon you, then you have misunderstood the scriptures. Because the Bible says that we are children of God whom he loves, not objects of his wrath. Even when we sin. And that's seen over and over again in Christ's interaction with his followers when they blew it. When Peter blows it after the, after the uh, resurrection, three times he, he denies Christ. And three times Christ forgives them and sends them off in a new direction. We need to recognize this morning that we have a God of peace. He's not at war with us. This idea of God being at peace is is not only to allow us in this process to be at peace with God, but to be at peace with ourselves. We don't have to be anxious in the process of sanctification. We don't have to wonder, is God going to be with us or is he going to leave us? God is saying, I'm here. I love you. I care for you. I want to see the best in your life. I want to walk you from point A to point B, and I want you never to worry. God wants us to be assured of that salvation that we have. And so he says, I want you to know I am the God of peace. The other thing that I want you to recognize about this term God of peace is that he's a God of peace as he's watching you live, his, you live your life. Now, for those that have multiple kids here, you recognize that you freaked out with the first one, right? Come on, be honest. I, I, I'm going to have to at some point apologize to Noah, man. We freaked out about everything, okay? 
First time he's sick, we're heading to the hospital. First time he falls on the ground, we're wrapping him in a full body cast, okay? And we're doing everything, okay? By the third time we rolled around, we really didn't care all that much, right? Luke falls, we say, get up. But my leg's broken. You'll be fine. Walk it off, okay? Why? Because we're at peace that we recognize that, that when you drop a baby, uh, the baby's going to get... I'm just kidding, okay? There's peace. You've been down that road, right? You don't got to freak out. I want you to know something. God is not sitting there watching us live our lives. And he sees Tim and he sees Tim blow and he's like, oh my God, did you, did you see what that guy did? What are we going to do about it? There's no answer in the rule book about that. I mean, that's heinous. Not even a mother can overlook that. He doesn't do that. He says, listen, I'm God. I know you're disobedient. I know you're going to go your own way. I know you're going to do these things. And listen, what you do today is no different than what they were doing in Thessalonica in the first century and what was happening in the Old Testament with the Jewish people. So God's not freaking out. He's not, oh, what are we going to do? God says, I'm in the business of getting Christians from point A to point B. You're going to make it in the journey. He's the God of peace. Notice the scope. Paul addresses the scope and he answers the question, what does it cover? This process of sanctification, what is he doing? Notice Paul says he will sanctify us. That word sanctify is where we get the term sanctification. Literally to set one apart is what it means. And so God has set us apart not to live our lives for ourselves, not to live our lives for our pleasures, but to live our lives according to the precepts and plans of God. That's what makes the Christian and the non-Christian different. We're not different because we live in different places or we work in different places. The difference is the non-believer elevator of decision-making goes up to their own head. Tim, what do you think on this subject? That's as high as the elevator goes for them. For us as Christians, the elevator goes way beyond us. In fact, it's one of those express elevators that it goes from the decision that's before us, it goes right past us, right? In fact, when Tim gets involved in the decision, that's the problem. So I need to take it up to the highest level to God and say, God, what would you say of this decision? How do you want me to spend my money? How do you want me to treat my wife? How do you want me to treat my employees? How do you want me to serve you? It doesn't stop with me answering that question. It's answered by God himself. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to recognize something. You are going to be sanctified. Notice what he says, partially. Some translations may say halfway, right? No. Look at the text. Sanctify you, help me out. Completely. Completely. And this word literally is, is the word holotelos. It describes something that is completely done. Not found wanting, not found unsound. It implies the entirety of the idea of completion. Paul says that what God is doing in your life, he will do it through and through. Now, this idea of completely is a couple things, Paul says. First of all, what it means is that if you're a child of God this morning, listen, on the day of glorification, you will, when everybody, listen, when everybody's on the other side of the sea, 
partying and having a great time in heaven, okay, in their glorified state, you won't be sitting there in your little dinghy, if you will, going, what about me? Did you forgive me? I'm over here, God. And God's going to be like, you know, we're missing somebody. Uh, who, you know, who didn't have a buddy? Okay? You're going to make it. Now, I know a lot of you feel like right now, there's no way I'm going to do it. And God says, I'm going to get you there. It's going to be done completely. The second thing that it tells us is, not only in the process will you make it to the finish line, but Paul then addresses the issue of the sanctifying work in your entire being. Notice he says, completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at his coming. The idea of body, soul, and spirit is not to, in essence, and I know for, for some maybe a little more theologically savvy, this draws up a whole question of the composition of a man. Or is a man made of three parts or, or two parts? Um, is he body, soul, and spirit? Or is he immaterial and material? And there's great debate that goes on with regards to this. I don't buy that this is a text that's dealing with the issue of the composition of a man. What I think Paul is saying is, Paul is saying when God sanctifies the human being, just as we are, listen, totally depraved in our sin, meaning sin is running through our veins, there's not a part of our sin, I'm sorry, there's not a part of our being that isn't affected by sin, that's the idea of total depravity. Every part of Tim is sinful. I know you know that, I'm just reiterating it. Okay? My thinking is sinful, my actions are sinful, my mouth is sinful, My attitudes about people are sinful. Every part of me, my decision-making is sinful. My preferences are sinful. Every part of me, there's not a part of Tim where I can point to that says, that's the holy part. That's the part that's right with God. I'm totally depraved. And so are you, by the way. Happy Palm Sunday. Okay? So we're sinful. And what God says is, I'm going to fix it. Now... Some of you, and and I hear it more with ladies, and I don't mean to make it a gender issue, but I hear it more with ladies, that ladies work out to fix a certain area on their bodies, right? There's that certain area that they want fixed, and hopefully, God help us, you husbands, you tell her that she doesn't need to fix that part of her body, okay? But amen, that's a good amen, brother, okay? But they want to fix it. And one of the things that, that we'll hear over and over again is they work out, they work out, they work out, and what does that one part of the body not do? doesn't change. And it brings great disappointment. And they come to the realization, I can try, I can work, and, and it'll never be fixed. Here's what God is saying spiritually. There's not a su- stubborn part of your sinfulness that God isn't going to fix. And listen, when God touches a per- certain part of your life, It always changes. It always gets fixed. God is not going to introduce us to our friends in heaven and say, "Uh, here's Tim, and he's great, but but overlook that part of his body because we couldn't fix that. I I did everything I could. even talked to Mr. Clean, and he brought out his eraser, and and it didn't get rid of it either. No, God's going to present us. Notice what the phrase says. Blameless. Blameless. Now, we're not there yet, right? So notice what God does. He gives a promise. He says that may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Notice there's a promise that calms our concerns. 
Part of us right now are sitting there going, I'm never going to figure this thing out. I'm never going to be able to, to be ready to meet God. I'm scared about meeting God. And God says, you don't need to be scared. You don't need to be worried about the what ifs. For many of us, we read the scriptures like this and we doubt and, and concerns flood our hearts and our minds. Yeah, sure, God is great and he will do his work, but he surely can't fix this in my life. I was talking with someone just the other day, a, a, fellow, a, a, a former employee of mine. And she came to know Christ at, a, at, a, at, a, at the, an adult age. And she lived a pretty wild life. And she was coming to thank uh, me for the role I had played in her life as a Christian boss and all of that. And she had gotten some, some news about some things that had happened in her past that now the sin in her life was now creeping up back into her life. You, you, you maybe have had that happen in your life. It's a terrible feeling when, when something you think has been long gone and that all the ramifications and circumstances of those stupid decisions that we made will never come back. And, and she had just gotten news that some of that stuff had come back into her life and, and she was dying. And in tears, she's sitting in my office and saying, maybe this is God's wrath. Maybe I blew it too much. Maybe I, I, I sinned too, too far for even God to fix it. And I said, you came to the right pastor this week. Because here's what First Thessalonians chapter 5 says. He's going to sanctify you completely. And you're going to be kept blameless. And so sitting at my desk, I walk through point number two with her. God's promised some things to you. Don't sit and worry. Don't ask the what ifs. Don't, don't be caught in bondage of your sin and, and, and wondering, can God fix this? He already has by the work of Christ on the cross. And I want you to notice a couple of things Paul says. Number one, if you're a child of God, listen, your standing is secure. It's secure. You will be kept blameless. This word, little word blameless in the Greek came from the legal uh, arena. What it means is that you have been acquitted in a court of law. Sad to have to admit this, but I've stood before a couple judges in my life. And one of the times I did, I got in trouble as a high school student, and my father went with us, uh, went with me, and uh, the judge asked the question, uh, Mr. Bedall, how do you plead, speaking to me? And I wanted to say not guilty. And I paused. To which my father, who is standing behind me, says, Judge, he's as guilty as sin. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Bill Bedall is the worst defense attorney you could ever have. <laughs> the guy laughs, he smiles, he likes it, okay? So he stops talking to me. The true story, okay? No exaggeration. He stops talking to me, looks to my dad and says, well, how would you rule? Whatever you were going to give him, I'd give him ten times it. I went from 50 hours of community service, do the math, to 500. Okay? I was guilty. And in the courtroom, there was a person who knew I was guilty and made sure everybody was aware of it. Okay? Now let me tell you something, just as a side note, you should have seen the other kids that were with their parents. God help you, mom or dad, if you say anything when I'm standing up there. Okay? 
Listen, when you stand before Jesus as a child of God, Bill Bidal isn't going to yell you're guilty of sin. Your spouse isn't going to yell you're guilty of sin. Listen, your enemy is not going to yell guilty of sin. Even more importantly, listen to me. The devil will not say you're as guilty as sin. Jesus will be standing next to us, and in that moment, he'll put his arm around you and I, and I'm speculating a bit, but give me some leeway here. He's going to put his arm around us. He's going to say, you know what, Father, Judge? They're with me. They're pure just like I am. I died for them on the cross. And yeah, they had, they had some troubles and they had some issues, but I covered their sin. It's been taken care of. Though their sin was scarlet, it's now as white as snow. Our standing is secure. Notice our progress is sure. Our progress is sure. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. This is important. Who is the one who called you in the first place? Who does the calling of unbelievers back to God? Help me out. Christ, right? Christ is the one who calls you. There are some who will say, well, God maybe doesn't know what he got when he picked me, right? Maybe he might want to return it. Let me tell you something. Salvation doesn't come. Hear this. Salvation does not come with a gift receipt that Jesus can turn you back in. Jesus knows what he got when he gave the gospel call for Tim to be saved. Just as he did for every one of us. He knows what he was doing. He's in the process of saving sinners, even dirty, rotten, filthy ones like the ones I'm looking at right now. Okay? Just like me. And so he's not going to sit there and say, you know what, yeah, this was... I got into a project that I'm no... <laughs> Father, this Bedal creature, he was a lot more than I thought. So I'm going to turn it in. I'm going to turn my gift receipt in and I'll go get something else. He who called you is faithful. Now Paul could have stopped there. But I want you to notice this idea here is that our entire hope for salvation for our sanctification and our glorification is not founded on us. It's founded on Christ. Now, does that mean we don't build on that foundation? The Bible talks about that. We are to build on that foundation, that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. But we can recognize and know this morning that if we have given our lives over to Jesus Christ, while the construction may be long, loud, and noisy, and probably very messy, that though there's just noise all about, at some point, when you stand before God, He's going to show not an incomplete work, but a complete work before the Judge and Father in Heaven. So you don't have to lose confidence. You don't have to lose hope. Now notice, Paul reiterates, he will do this. No qualification, no hesitation, no doubt of any kind, just four simple words, he will do it. Not may do it, not might do it, not could do it, not do it if he feels like it, not even do it if we do our part. 
He will do it. What a declarative statement that is given. We can have faith, we can have hope that the one who began the good work in us will see it to the day of completion. Praise God, right? Aren't you glad you can have that confidence? Aren't you glad you can have that assurance this morning that if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, that you can stand before God? If today was the day of your judgment, you could stand before him with calmness in your heart because God has done his work. Notice your future is sealed. When will all this happen? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read it over and over again. That at the coming of the Lord, we will experience one of two futures. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, just go back a, a couple pages, or not even a page. You can stay on the same page you're in your Bible. For God has not destined us, for the believer, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are asleep or awake, we might live with him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the judgment. If you look over a page to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you're going to see things like wrath and inflicting vengeance and flaming fire, suffering the, in verse 9 of chapter 1, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who will believe. Listen, at the coming of Christ, which could be today, it could be tomorrow, or it could be a hundred years from now. Whenever that moment comes, there are two responses in that day. The believer will look and with great assurance in his heart say, yes, Jesus has come. And the unbeliever will experience great weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God says, there will be no confidence in that moment. Which begs the question this morning, and it's the question we've been asking over and over and over again in this series. Brother and sister, listen to me. Every person in this place, are you ready for the coming of our Lord? Because if you're not, I don't say it, God's word says it, vengeance and judgment, punishment, eternal destruction, are what you have to look forward to. If you're a child of God, then confidence and joy and peace and love and mercy and salvation are what you have to look forward to. And it's through the preaching of the word for those that have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ that says today is the day of salvation. You too can have it as well. So if I stopped here, then every one of us would buy into the powerboat approach. And that's incomplete. God is doing an amazing work. He promises that that work will be done. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there. He could have. He could have stopped the letter right there at the end of, of verse 24. And he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. But he doesn't. And he gives us three more verses. And I want to close with this. There are practices to holiness. There are practices that lead us to holiness. Verse 25, uh, before we get there, by, before, before we go there, Paul has shared with us in verses 16 through 22 the practices of holiness. He's done it in what I'd like to call bumper sticker theology, right? 
Rejoice always. You can put that on a bumper sticker. Pray without ceasing. That can go there. Give thanks in all circumstances. You can fit that on a bumper. Do not quench the spirit. Verse 19. Verse 20. Do not spies prophecy. Verse 21. Test everything. Uh, second part of verse 20. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Bumper sticker theology. It's good. It works. These are all things that we need to be doing. These are all things that draw us closer to God. As God's doing His work, we play a part. Remember, it's a sailboat, not a powerboat, not a rowboat. It's us working together with God in unison with God. God doing the part that only He can do and us doing the part that He has called us to do. And so what God says is, listen, you've got some work to do. Holiness is a task. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're to do your part. And Paul tells us how to do it. He tells us holiness, first of all, is done best in community. It's done best in community. Verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Verse 26. Greet all brothers with a holy kiss. Let's stop there. Twice in two verses do we see brothers. Let's go one more verse. Verse 27. Read the letter to all the brothers. Three times in three verses. In fact, 19 times in this entire letter and another eight times in the next letter, we are going to see the word brothers there. Brothers signify that the Christian life in Thessalonica was an endeavor that was done in community, not in isolation. I'm going to say something that I think might, might uh, cause some people really to, to think through this, this statement I'm going to make. I believe it is far easier to find holiness in Christ when you're with a group of people than it is, a group of Christians, than it is to find it in isolation. And here's how I know. I've done a study. I sin more when I'm apart from you than when I'm with you. Did you know that? I'm terrible by myself. I need people in my life. I need people in my life to keep me from sinning. Because if I stay away long enough and the devil starts working in my life, then, then I, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know where I'll go. Because I recognize, I recognize that the heart is deceitfully sick. And I need people to point that out in my life. And tell me, Tim, hey, 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 you're, you're moving away a little bit. Come on back, man. We love you. Come back to, to what the Lord is saying. We need people to help us with this. And so, listen, when we ask you to be a part of things, and I keep going back to this, we're not asking you to be a part of programs. Listen, this is not a community center. The elders believe that the reason why you need to be involved, it is the greatest protection for your holiness. And so we want to get you around other Christians, and that's why... We're going to study God's Word when we get together. And we're going to talk about the things of the Lord when we get together. And we're going to make sure that whatever we're doing, God has a part in it. Whether we're shooting baskets in the gym or getting together with a group of guys on a Saturday. We want to do it together because we believe holiness is best done in community. Notice a couple things about this holiness. First of all, it's spiritual. Pray for your brothers. We aren't enjoying the same hobby. We're, we are soldiers in the same battle. And so we pray for one another for protection. Why do we pray for our brothers? Listen, I believe holiness is found in community that when we're not in community, the one thing we should be doing is praying for one another. Does that make sense? That when we're not together, we need to be praying for one another. Lord, I pray for, for my friends who are going to be out in the workplace this week, Lord, that they'll work with an ethic that comes from you. That they'll make wise decisions. That they won't uh, compromise their their uh, Christianity for the sake of a sale. 
I pray for my brothers. I pray for my sisters in that way. They're, they're soldiers in the battle. It's inclusive, this holiness. It's inclusive. It's not something we found. Notice he says, greet all the brothers. Greet all the brothers. Not some of the brothers. Brothers also means sisters, brethren, family. And we're to greet all of them. This pursuit of holiness isn't just for the white people and we push the black people away. It's not for the black people and not for the Hispanics. It's not for the Americans and not the Africans or the Asians. It is for all people. It isn't for those that are all fully put together, but it's for those who are struggling and who are fighting through sin. It's not just for the mature, but it's for the immature. It's not for just the rich, but for the poor. It is for all people and we extend that love and kindness to all. Holiness is also found in community. It will be intimate. Give each other kisses. I know, right away, that's cultural, right? That's cultural, we don't do that. As a pastor, let me help you out with something. It is very, very dangerous to go to the scriptures and say, uh, this part's cultural. Because we don't like it when other people take parts of the scripture and say, well, that was in the first century. That's truly not true for today, right? We have that argument going on all over our world today. And so we need to understand, when it says give each other kisses, our relationship should be intimate. They should be close. Some of us can't even see ourselves putting out a hand to one another, let alone giving a kiss to another. A holy kiss cannot be done at arm's length. It gets up close and personal. I'm Middle Eastern. I've had a whole lot of people kiss me. Okay? It's up close and personal. Man, if you're a germaphobe, you're in trouble if you're in the Assyrian culture. There are no germs. We're just one Petri dish, right? It's men, women, people you met, people you haven't. They're kissing one side, other side, multiple times, man. It's... And it's intimate. It's up close and personal. And what Paul is saying is our fellowship needs to be that way as well. So the way that we display our fellowship through a holy kiss is how our relationship should be. We should be in one another's lives. People should know us. They shouldn't just know maybe our name. They should know who we are, what we do, what we're about, where we live, what concerns us, what brings us joy. It's done best in community. It's founded on a curriculum. I put you under oath, verse 27, before the Lord to have this letter read to all the believers, all the brothers. Paul wants this letter read to all. Why? Because he knew that the word of God and holiness would never be found apart from the word of God. We need someone to tell us we aren't holy. We need someone to tell us, but we can be holy. Someone needs to tell us that we can tap into Jesus Christ, who's the one who can make us holy, who points to the activities that allow us to allow that holiness to take hold. And that thing is the thing that's being held in your hand. The Word of God. And that's why we pick this book up every week. And we read it. And we sit under its teaching. Because we know we can't find holiness without it. And so we base it on this letter that was read 2,000 years ago and changed lives. It's the same letter that's changing lives today. But right when we think we can figure this out, if I just do what this book says and I hang out with the right kind of people, well, then I'll be holy. Verse 28 just reminds us again that it's only possible through Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with 
you. What a great word for a new week, right? We got another Monday coming. And that next Monday, this next Monday is going to be a hard one. And what do we need tomorrow morning? Grace. What do you need in your marriage tomorrow morning? Grace. What do you need with your kids tomorrow morning? Lots of grace. When you go to work tomorrow morning, what are you going to need? Grace. When that temptation comes your way tomorrow morning, what are you going to be looking for? Grace. When you fail and fall flat on your face, what are you looking for? Grace. When you don't think you're ready, what do you need? Grace. And that grace comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can be holy because our God in heaven is holy. And because he sent his son to die to make us his righteousness. God has played his part. Are you? Are the things in your life ready for the winds of God's holiness to take you from your salvation to that great and glorious glorification? There's work for us to do. So let's work to that end in Christ's name. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I give you all the glory for what we've learned through this book. Continue to challenge us in the days to come from what we've learned from this book. And as we pick up this second letter, Lord, we'll see that some things have changed and good things are happening, but there's still some things left unresolved. What a reminder for us that each and every day we need new teaching and we need new uh, truth spoken into our lives, truth that maybe we weren't aware of before, or maybe old truths that are reminding us over and over again of what it means to follow you. So send us forth from this place now, in this holy week where we will celebrate your death and your burial, and as we gather together with great anticipation, where we will with great joy celebrate your resurrection, the resurrection that, that once and for all guaranteed every Christ follower a glorious eternity in Christ. So let that not go by us this week, and bring it to memory. That the one who's called us is faithful. That you will do it. Praise be to God who has called us and who now is changing us and one day will transform us to be like you. We love you for it and we're grateful for it. And we thank you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.